Welcome to this week's episode of Graveyard Coffee Talk. We're your hosts, Amanda and Corinne. And this week we have a really fun episode topic for you guys. We are going to examine some bits of Christmas and holiday folklore, traditions, why we do what the we holiday do. season the way we do. Yeah, we, uh, we looked at the content calendar and said, well, huh. That's a thing that we should be doing. Yep, yep, yep. We plan things very well. Mm-hmm. Yes, we do. We definitely didn't realize it three weeks before Christmas. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, hey, Amanda, tell us a little bit about the coffee that we're drinking today. All right. So today we went and picked up coffee at another local coffee shop here in town. It's called Bean. It is at the corner of Texas and Goss Avenue here in Louisville, Kentucky. It is lovely. I love the vibes inside. The vibes are immaculate. And the coffee is delicious. Uh, I have a plain latte, regular whole milk. It's amazing. It is definitely hitting the spot for me this afternoon. Yeah, I uh, got a little bit overwhelmed at the size of their menu and defaulted to my usual and mocha. The balance between the coffee and the chocolate flavors are really, really impressive. I'm I'm quite happy with this. And it's nice and warm on a day that is cooler than expected. And we're supporting local, which you should always try to do nine times out of ten. If you can find a small local coffee shop, it is going to be a better value for your money than a big chain. It's pretty great. All right. So, Corinne, do you want to tell us about our card pull for this episode? Yeah. What what sort of Christmas are we having? Well, well, Amanda, I shuffled my deck. I swear I did. And I'm going to sage this bitch afterwards. Okay. Because I pulled the tower. Yay. Oh, Um, good. Luckily, I am once again using the wild unknown tarot. I'm starting to think that based on how often I'm pulling cards, uh, I have a good argument for buying more tarot decks now. Checks out. I was asked to maybe slow my roll, but whatever. Um, Anyway, this is a a kinder, gentler tower in the Wild Unknown Tarot. It is still unexpected upheaval. The card is really, really striking. It's a tall tree being struck by lightning and catching fire, which is fun. Do love fire. Uh, Also, it looks a bit like a Christmas tree. It does look like a Christmas tree. Hey, look, we are making connections. But yeah, this is this is upheaval. This is big change coming through, and it's gonna suck. Great. But that doesn't mean that it's not supposed to happen and that you can't grow back stronger. Well, that's something at least. It is. Yeah. Um, I might be cursed. I don't know. That's it's just what it is what it is, yo. Yep, yep, yep. Alright, well, on that happy note. Let's start with 
a quick look at how December the 25th became the official date for Christmas. Awesome! Not really American, but a fun bit of background. Um, I know this time of year, there's all sorts of posts going around online about how Christmas was put in the winter to take over some pagan festivals. And while several bits of traditional Christmas decorations, you know, the Yule log, the Christmas tree, do hearken to some pagan times. December 25th is not one of them. I, yes. Um, I remember learning about that a little bit myself, but also I just feel like we are Roman Catholics and in the great Roman tradition, we do borrow from everybody else. Yes. That's like the one thing I got from my history classes is Rome is like, oh, that's cool. You made this? I, I made, made this. this. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in the second century AD, a historian named Sextus Julius Africanus recorded in his work Chronographiae that the appearance of the archangel Gabriel to Zechariah in the Gospel of Luke had to have taken place on the observance of Yom Kippur sometime in October because, quote, the worshippers were praying outside the temple and not within, as only the priest could enter the temple at this time to conduct the proper rituals. Okay. End quote. The Gospels also state that Jesus was six months younger than his cousin John the Baptist, which would mean that Jesus was conceived in March, which is why the Feast of the Annunciation is in March. Do you want to know how long it took me to realize that that was nine months before Christmas? Oh, honey. Oh, yeah. I was well into adulthood, and I went to 16 years of Catholic schools. Mm. Yep. Corinne's real smart, people. Like, mm -hmm. legitimately she is. Um, and it is further believed that by some historians that in 274 AD, Roman Emperor Aurelian established the festival Dies Natalis Solis Invicti in order to compete with the Christian feast of Christmas. Oh, okay. As Christianity was gaining popularity within the Roman Empire. Interesting. So it could be argued, and the dates are a little fuzzy. Um, you know, record keeping wasn't phenomenal. Propaganda was rampant. But it could be argued that the Romans actually stole one of their Chris winter festivals from Christmas. I kind of love that. And again, as Rome do, it tracks. Yeah. I love it. Okay, that's awesome. Um, but now we can, you know, move back on to the United States. And it turns out for Christmas, we don't have a whole lot that is strictly American. Mm, that makes sense. Outside of the sheer capitalism of it all. Yeah, that, that tracks. So I'm focusing a little bit on the reasons behind some of our food traditions for oh, the holidays. Okay, I love food. Me too. So, you know, when we think of Christmas in the United States, we think Santa. Mm -hmm. We think commercialism. Yep. And we think boozy food. Oh, God, yes. So we are going to start with, honestly, my least favorite Christmas food, eggnog. I'm sorry, that's blasphemy. But also it means more for me, so carry on. I mean, you and my husband both believe that. I just do not get the appeal. It's so good, especially when you add bourbon. No. Yeah. The exact origins of eggnog as we know it today are unknown. 
We know that a similar drink existed in the 13th century in England, where egg, cream, and wine, normally some sort of fortified dessert wine like Mm. sherry, were mixed together in a drink known as a posset. Okay. And that was incredibly popular amongst aristocrats and around the holiday times, some of the poorer folks would save up to make it and use it as a toast to prosperity in the year to come. All right, that makes sense. Um, You know, eggs and cream in England at the time were definitely foods for the wealthy. You Mm. didn't squander it on something like an alcoholic beverage. Yeah. Um, But the drink that we know as eggnog today seems to be, again, the origins are a little fuzzy, but it seems to be purely American. Oh, awesome. Um, We don't know the origin of the name. Okay. It might derive from nog, which is an old English word for a strong beer. Mm Mm-hmm. It might derive from the word noggin, which was the word for a small cup used in the 16th century. That's adorbs. And uh, my favorite, and what I'm going to choose to believe for the rest of my life, is that it was a cost-saving measure when printing became common. (laughs) Because American colonists referred to thick drinks as grogs. So the theory goes that in the wintertime, the colonists drank, quote, egg and grog, which got mashed together in print as eggnog. I love that. I want to believe that that's true. And it tracks with how the English language has progressed as printing has become the most popular method of distributing information yeah that's like why people don't use the oxford comma anymore which i have opinions about that but i will disagree okay. with you and my the... sister-in-law no 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 oh no you do okay i will disagree with the exclusion of the oxford comma my sister-in-law disagrees but that's because she's used to writing ap well she's wrong and she i has to learn it now because she's an english teacher and they use mla i wish her the best She's really struggling, and I love it. <laughs> love you, Eliza. So nice. Um, so the first written use of the word eggnog occurred in 1788 okay. in an article in the New Jersey Journal, which described a young man with a voracious appetite who enjoyed, quote, 30 raw eggs, oh. a glass of eggnog, oh, no. and another of brandy sling. So My there you hurts. Ha- There you have it, folks. Gaston lived in New Jersey. <laughs> Tummy hurts. That's not enough eggs. Thirty. He ate four dozen eggs every morning to help him get large. That's forty-eight eggs. <sighs> well, this is He's before just a Gaston wannabe. This is before he was the size of a barge. Okay. No, because that's he eats five dozen eggs because he's roughly the size of a barge. You're right. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. A terrible Disney fan. I apologize. Okay, Uh, carry on. So when possets made it to the colonies, the sherry got replaced by the much easier to obtain Caribbean rum. Okay. In most recipes. Makes sense. So with the availability of a cheaper rum, milk and eggs in the colonies were incredibly cheap. Okay. Because most of colonial America was farmland. Posset eventually turned into eggnog. Okay. And it became a drink for all classes. Okay. Not just the wealthy. Interesting. And eggnog is so American, in fact, that George Washington himself allegedly have had a recipe. And I have it here for you. I think I've heard about this. Yes, yes, yes. Please share. 
one quart cream. Okay. One quart milk. Excellent. One dozen tablespoon sugar. <laughs> one pint brandy. Okay. A half a pint of rye whiskey. Yes. A half a pint of Jamaican rum. Jesus. A quarter pint of sherry. Okay. Mix the liquor first, then separate the yolks and whites of the eggs. Add sugar to the beaten yolks. Mix well. Add milk and cream, slowly beating. Beat whites of eggs until stiff and fold slowly into mixture. Let sit in cool place for several days. Taste frequently. Um, yeah. Now, did you notice what was missing in that recipe? Bourbon? We were not told how many eggs go in the eggnog. Mm. So I guess Washington was sampling it a little too much. He did say taste frequently. He did. Um, 19th century cooks determined that a dozen eggs should do the job. There is uh, a TikTok. I've sent you B. Dylan Hollis before, right? Oh my gosh. If people have not watched B. Dylan Hollis's vintage food TikToks. Because he makes eggnog. It's a it's a fairly recent one. It just came up. I'll uh, I'll text it to you after we finish. Please recording. do. But he absolutely makes eggnog, and I bet he makes the George Washington recipe. It's not quite that alcoholic. Mm. Unfortunately well, for him, didn't think he was a quitter. Apparently not. Well, we'll have to uh, petition him to to remake the the TikTok because you know clearly we we two small time podcasters have that clout. Definitely. <laughs> Yeah, everyone listens to us. Duh. Um, but no, I'm actually tempted to make that eggnog because it sounds like there's enough liquor in there for me to forget that I hate eggnog. I, I think you'd forget a lot of things, Amanda. Probably. We should we should do this for science. Yeah. And content. Science and content. <laughs> Put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> yes, ma'am. All right, so now on to the best part of Christmas food, the cookies. Yes! Oh, I love Christmas cookies. Um, and we're going to do a very brief history of cookies as we know them today. Um, is this folklore and the topic of this podcast? I'm going to argue yes, because cookies are delicious. Also, I, food as a full pathway is perfectly legitimate. Yep. So prototypical cookies came into being in Persia in the 7th century. Oh, Okay. Uh, which makes sense as Persia was one of the earliest empires to get a hold of and process sugar. Awesome. As we know it today. Thank you, modern day Iran. Mm-hmm. So after crusaders established the spice trade, sugar and the cookies that people were using it to make began to spread throughout Europe. Okay. Leading to sweet cookies becoming available for purchase along the streets of Paris in the 14th century. Thank you, Parisian patissiers. You all truly do God's work. <laughs> Uh, cookie recipes started showing up in cookbooks in the 1500s. Baking became a quote unquote serious profession okay. in the 17th century. Which means men were doing it, not women. Yep. <clears throat> and that's when cookies started to become works of art. Okay. And in the late 17th century, Dutch immigrants brought over not only their traditional cookie recipes to the new uh, to the colonies, mm -hmm. they brought over the tradition of the Christmas cookie swap. Oh, okay. Love so, that. Yeah. The first recorded sw cookie swap in the now United States occurred in New York in 1703. Okay. And from there, the tradition caught on all over the colonies with our buddy George Washington serving his famous eggnog at cookie swaps at Mount Vernon. Oh, I love that. 
And as the U.S. expanded throughout the continent, American geography began to uniquely influence the cookies that we saw on the Christmas table. Okay. So oranges from the West and coconuts from the South began to show up in cookie recipes as railroads opened up cheaper trade routes. Okay. Uh, The United States also gets to lay claim to one of the most wonderful baking accidents ever when in the 1930s, Toll House restaurant owner Ruth Graves Wakefield thought chocolate chips would melt into the batter to make chocolate cookies as she baked her cookies <laughs> and invented chocolate chip cookies. Now that woman was doing the Lord's work. Yes, she was. And we can't discuss cookies in mm-hmm. America without talking about our offering to St. Nick. Milk yes. and cookies on Christmas Eve. So the roots of this tradition actually go back to ancient Norse mythology. During the Yule season, so the winter solstice, children would leave food out for Odin's eight-legged horse, Sleipnir. Yay! In the hopes that Odin would leave gifts in return. Okay. Over the centuries, this tradition has evolved. In countries where Santa traditionally has horses instead of reindeer, children leave carrots and hay for the animals in exchange for chocolate coins, cocoa, oranges, and marzipan. Oh, marzipan. Yum. Sorry. Right? Focusing. Uh, in traditionally British colonies, children often leave out sherry and mince pies okay. for Santa. I saw that when I was in England. It was really cool. Mm-hmm. Swedish kids leave out rice porridge. Okay. Sorry, Santa in Sweden. Irish kids include a pint of Guinness. Fuck yes. And French children leave wine for Père Noël and carrots and, ha- and hay for his donkey. No, I didn't know Père Noël had a donkey. He has one little donkey whose name translates to mistletoe. Why didn't I learn that in French class? Maybe I didn't. I wasn't paying attention. (laughs) I mean, it's quite possible, but I'm sad that I didn't already know that. Well, now you do. I learned a thing. So for the beginning of American history, if children left anything for Father Christmas, it was related to whatever cultural background their family came from. Makes sense. But this changed in the 1930s with the Great Depression. Mm. It was at that time that milk and cookies became commonplace, and it's the reason for it just is so heartwarming to me. Mm-hmm. In a time of such economic hardship, parents were trying to find a way to teach their children that no matter where you are in life, it is important to give to others and show gratitude for any gifts that you receive. Aww, that's really sweet. I just, I love that. I love that so much. That's really sweet. And then just very quickly, because I know my segment's going a little long, uh, we're just going to go through a quick list of interesting Christmas traditions in the American South. Okay. Um, So you know how here in Louisville you see houses with a single candle in windows? Mm -hmm. Uh, Did you know that's not a ubiquitous Christmas decoration around the world? Okay, um, I'm going to admit that I didn't know that because I'm used to a certain celebration in France, which... One day we'll do an episode on, and I wish I'd thought to cover it for this, but um, we'll do it another time. Yeah, I had no idea. I just, you know, yeah. I you see it every year. Candles in the windows. Yep. But that can trace its roots back to colonial Williamsburg. Okay. Where the candles symbolize loyalty to loved ones who couldn't make it home for the holidays. Aww. Um, moving on to Louisiana, people light Christmas Eve bonfires to light the way for Père Noël and his reindeer. Hell yes. Um, at these 
bonfires. There are like tailgate-like feasts. Oh, fun. People wander from fireside to fireside visiting with everyone. And there's booze and food everywhere. As well there should be. And it's a time for community. Yes. Outer Banks, North Carolina, didn't get the news about the 1752 switch to the Gregorian calendar for several decades. Uh-oh. So they continued celebrating Christmas on, quote, Old Christmas, January 6th, for decades. Okay, but that makes sense, though. Mm-hmm. So they still celebrate Old Christmas with parties, oyster shoots, and the arrival of Old Buck, a bull who plays pranks on people. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yep. And lastly, and I want to go to this. Okay. At Lenox Square Mall in Atlanta, kids line up for a ride on the Pink Pig Tram that tours the Winter Wonderland set up in a Macy's. I'm sorry, the what? The Pink Pig Tram. This has been going on for almost 60 years now. Quah. And I have a picture. Yes. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I No me gusta. That's horrifying. I hate it. I love it. Please? Everything about it is wonderful. And this is definitely going up on our blog. It's going to go up. Yeah. Uh, I need you to send me that, though, because my friend Brittany is obsessed with pigs. And I need to send that to her. And Absolutely. be like, look at what you have wrought. <laughs> um, and that is my segment. Christmas Christmas in the U.S. Okay, so I guess that means it's my turn, so I should probably pull up my notes, which are hiding. You know, that might help. Yeah, so I had grand plans, like I usually do. Um, I also, due to the vagaries of fate, had two days to do my research. (laughs) Again, we plan things really well. (laughs) We're so good at planning so I, I realized quickly I was going to have to narrow my scope. And as I started to dig into my first topic, I s- discovered I can do a lot with this. So we're only discussing one thing out of my, my planned list. Okay. And um, you texted me about this because you said, don't forget. And I said, oh, bitch, no, I will not. <laughs> um, we are going to be digging into uh, a tradition from Wales. Called the Mariluid. Yes. Uh, apologies in advance for my Welsh pronunciation. It is very sketch. I did actually spend several months trying to learn Welsh on Duolingo. I'm sorry. It, it's got some great words. Like, Wediblino just means tired. Oh, I miss Wediblino. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So, that said, uh, if you've been on Tumblr at all in the last eh, five or ten years... Which I, I've just exposed myself that I am still on this hell site in the year of our Lord 2021. I mean, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, but you may be already familiar with the Marluid. Uh, she is an intensely creepy looking horse skull on a stick. Uh, highly decorated with lights and streamers and holly and ivy. Sometimes there's little baubles in her eyes. I love her. I She scares me. Um, and there's usually a long white cloth draped around her, and that is to hide the person holding the stick and operating the horse skull. Um, because of course, of fucking course, this horse skull is usually rigged up so that they can move its mouth. Amazing. Uh, it can open its mouth, it can snap at people. And you know, that's not viscerally terrifying at all. No. Um, so yeah, that is 
what you see when you look at pictures of Mari Lewin. Uh, and depending on what translation you're using, Mari Lewin translates to, alternatively, Grey Mary, Grey Mare, or Grey Mane. Okay. So the Grey Mare and Grey uh, Mane might be a reference to, there's a horse from Celtic folklore who could travel between the lands of the living and the lands of the dead. Uh, it was the steed of the goddess Rhiannon, I believe. That makes sense. Um, I think you're right. Yeah. I'm 90% certain. Should have made better notes, but here we are. However, the Grey Mary, which has also, according to some folklorists, been loosely translated as Holy Mary, is to connect this figure to the Nativity story. Okay. In... In this variant of the nativity story, a mare that was with foal got booted from the stables to make space for Mary and Joseph and the infant Jesus. Rude. Right? I'm like, and I, I reject that story. We are, we are rejecting this nativity narrative outright. So the whole thought process, again, is just, you know, to tie this story into the nativity. Um, there was a pretty strong belief for a while that Mari Lewid comes from pre-Christian religious traditions in the area. Uh, however, there's not really anything that supports that belief. Okay, so it kind of goes back to the, we think certain things are pagan that may not be. Yeah, so um, folklorists were trying to make this this connection between Mari Lewid and pre-Christian males. Uh, however, the prevailing theory these days is that it actually originated in the 16th or 17th century during what was a massive craze for hobby horses. I'm sorry. <laughs> I am not joking. <laughs> I am absolutely serious to you. Hobby horses apparently were like super fucking popular okay. in the 16th and 17th century in the UK. And this is kind of like a down market version of that. Hi, kids. I'm sorry that I couldn't get you the regular horse head on a stick. Have a skull. Yeah. Amazing. So yes, despite her somewhat macabre look, Mari Lewitt is actually a harbinger of good luck to all of those whose home she enters. So you actually want her to come visit you. Okay. Despite the fact that she looks creepy. Um, So different villages will bring out the Mari Lewitt at different times. Uh, it's usually any time between Christmas and Twelfth Night, which is January 6th, mm-hmm. Feast of the Epiphany. And uh, so Mari Lewin and her whole crew, because, you know, she travels with the crew, will come around to doors. Um, the other people in the crew are typically dressed as characters, like stock characters from old British theater. So okay. like Punch and Judy. Okay. So, you know, kind of going back to medieval, uh, medieval theater. And so they go to different homes and pubs, and they knock on the door, and they sing a song about why they should be let in. Oh, that's not... Oh, it gets better. So they sing a song about, you know, you should, you should let me into your home. And the homeowners are like, no, here are all of the reasons we can't let you in right now. And they go back and forth. Um, it, it's somewhat akin to modern-day rap battles. Amazing. Um... Trading insults is very frequently a part of this tradition. And eventually the homeowners run out of reasons for why Mari Lewin may not enter into their home. So the whole crew comes in 
and they eat and they drink and they have a good time and your home is now blessed with good luck. Okay. Um, so one thing to keep in mind, though, is that Mari Lewin is a little bit of a trickster. Um, she likes to snap at people, you know, with her little movie jaw, which I hate. <laughs> I hate so fucking much. Uh, she'll chase them around. And I'm not going to lie, that would make me pee myself in fear. Oh, yeah. I would die. Um, and I'm just like, I hate this. I hate this so much. Okay, but I love this. It's so great. I I love that I looked at this thing and I'm like, this is horrifying. But no, it's lighthearted. It's joyful. This is great. Um, so Mari Lewis' heyday was largely in the 19th century. And things started to slacken off in the early 20th century. A lot of this happened to coincide with like, World War One, so understandable that you know traditions like that are going to kind of slacken off. Um, there is some debate on whether the slackening was due to cultural changes, religious pressure, or you know Britain's general tendency to squash Welsh culture. What? <laughs> Not that I'm you know throwing shots or anything. Eh, they deserve it. <clears throat> so fewer and fewer towns were bringing out Mary Lewin, but she never completely went out of style. Um, but in the mid to late twentieth century. Side note, how weird is it to talk about late 20th century, which is the time yeah. period during which we were children? Yeah. Yeah. We were born in the 20th century. Yeah. It's like... I don't like it. Kids on their TikToks talking about people born in the 1900s. Oh, I hate it. I hate it. Um, but anyway, during this, the mid to late 20th century, there was a revival of the tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a big folk revival in general. Um, and something that I learned that I thought was really cool is that... In order to keep this tradition alive into the 21st century and beyond, Wales has a folk development organization that got together to create curriculum around the Mary Lewin and created, I'm not joking, flat pack Mary Lewins to send to schools. So like cardboardy type skulls instead of, you know, just getting a horse skull. All we got were recorders. You got recorders? When I went to public school. Fair. Uh, but anyway, they, they have developed this to keep this tradition alive. Um, so as I'm doing this research, I started noticing some other references to hooded animal figures in British folklore. And I was like, well, that sounds fucking weird. I'm going to click on these links. I'm so glad you do that. <laughs> and I was like, well, you know, if it's not related to Christmas... I'm going to keep this in my back pocket and be like, hey, Amanda, I've got a thing. Okay. But it turns out this is still related to Christmas. So there are these other similar traditions in other religions, uh, regions, not religions. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I can't read my own handwriting. <laughs> That's not handwriting, Corinne. Shut up. That is on a computer screen. I can't read. I can't see. I'm tired. <laughs> I haven't had enough coffee. Oh, coolly dokily. So. Buckle up, because we're going to get a little weird. And we're not... There's so much research out there that I just didn't have time to get into. Okay. But, um... So, yes, there's a whole thing about hooded animals in Britain at Christmas. In Derbyshire and Yorkshire, there is a figure called Old Tup. Sometimes he's referred to as Derby Tup or the Derby Ram. And this is actually what I messaged my friend Adrian about, because I'm reasonably certain her husband's family is from Derby. Okay. And I wanted to know if he knew anything about this. She has not answered me. And if she updates me before this goes live, I will add it to my notes. 
Amazing. Fingers crossed. Um, Adrian, we need answers. Please, please, A, help us. You're our only hope. Um, but yes, you have a very similar construction, except this time, instead of a horse head, it's a ram's head. And this is typically not a skull. It is, you know, like paper mache or cloth or whatever. And, um, instead of these characters from, uh, from theater, one of the members of the crew who runs with Old Top is a butcher who sometimes slaughters Old Top. No! Right? Um, like people going around and saying, who wants venison after chasing Santa's reindeer? <laughs> om nom nom. <laughs> um, yeah. So there's Old Top and there's just reams of academic papers about him that I did not get to read. And then uh, that tradition is actually still alive as well. That that has gone through its own revival. Old Top is still apparently a thing in this area. Uh, in Kent, there was another figure called the Hoodening. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this is another creepy-ass hobby horse. Because <laughs> what the fuck? Uh, it, and it is treated as more horse-like. Um, its attendants are a wagoner, a jockey, things like that. Um, okay. You know, a stable person. Uh, however, this tradition has largely died out in its original form, but has been somewhat revived in Morris dancing, which has also been a folk tradition that's revived that is much like Mari Lewid and their ilk, not actually pagan. Mm-hmm. And it really does originate from, like, the 16th or 17th century. Okay. And I totally forgot to, like, touch on this, but one of the reasons they believe that these traditions are so much newer is because there are no references to them in medieval scholarship. So, like, I mean, people write about their day-to-day. They've done it for centuries. Right. So there's just – there are not these references to something. And I feel like, you know – the medieval abbess is going to be like, yeah, so the peasants were parading around with a fucking horse head again. But we, we we don't have this. In fact, the earliest writing we have on Mari Lewid comes from 1800. Okay. So, and it was some pastor writing about, like, these fucking superstitious peasants bringing out their pagan things. It's not oh. pagan, it's just weird. Lighten up. Just because it's a horse skull doesn't mean it's a pagan thing. It's not pagan. It's just weird. <laughs> I I feel like we've gotten two t-shirts out of this. We have. So that is, um, that's what I learned about. Well, happy holidays, Happy guys. holidays. Um, two lighthearted episodes in a row for you. Two lighthearted episodes in a row. Don't worry, we're making up for it later. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll see you in 2022, guys. Oh my goodness. Yep. All right, well, sweet dreams and caffeinated nightmares, all. Good night. Thank you for listening to Graveyard Coffee Talk. Our theme music is Pretty Little Dead Girls by Sean and McGuire. Copyright 2006 and used with permission. Our cover art is by Kyle Welsh. If you want to keep the chat going, please visit our website at graveyardcoffeetalk.com for transcripts, episode notes, and more. Follow us on Instagram at Graveyard Coffee Talk Pod or on Twitter at Talk Graveyard. About two years later, the storm is gone. They say she's out there on
16 Yeah, she never grew up 